0: Welcome to The Exploress, time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. In 19th century America, the Wild West was a dream. Of striking it rich, of finding fame, a fresh start, or freedom. It was a place of extremes and contradictions, full of epic landscapes and terrible hardships, independence and lawlessness and swing-door saloons. Americans were obsessed with the West then, and they still are. But when we think of frontier legends, we tend to picture grizzled cowboys pointing shiny guns. If we see a woman at all, it's a pretty, helpless schoolteacher or that fast-talking dancer at the local brothel. But what was life really like for women on the rugged frontier? What prompted Victorian-era ladies to journey into such a wild, unknown land? And what kind of lives did they find once they got there? And what about the women who were already there, say Native American women or Mexican ones? And then there's the ultimate question Did these women find freedom and equality in the West, or did their era's strict rules about a woman's place still apply? Grab your sunbonnet, some snake venom antidote, and your most reliable pistol. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons, my pirate queens, Edie, Emily, Jessica, Get Grim Podcast and the Boobies and Newbies Podcast, and my lady presidents, Amy, Brendan, Louisa, Caitlin, Eve, Courtney, Lindsay, Avery, Karen, Elizabeth, Jackie, Caroline, Lauren, Kat, Mary, Claire, Nancy, Casey, and Paul. This episode is dedicated to my main squeeze, Paul, who I had to travel very, very far west for. Totally worth it. So let's start somewhere in the 1840s, in, oh, let's say, Ohio. You're gazing out your farmhouse window and seriously contemplating heading out into the wild frontier. But what is the frontier, exactly? In the colonial era, it was anywhere west of the Blue Ridge Mountains. There are rumors about woolly mammoths, volcanoes, and mountains of salt, Okay, But what life's really like out there, pretty much nobody knows. The frontier changed in 1803 when President Thomas Jefferson bought a bunch of land from the French at a rock-bottom price—$15 million, or four cents to an acre. The Louisiana Purchase was one of American history's biggest and most influential bargain purchases, winning America all the land from the Mississippi River west to the Rockies and from Canada down to New Orleans. That's about 827,000 square miles, or, for the metric lovers out there, 2,142,920 square kilometers. So, about the size of modern-day France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Germany, Holland, Switzerland, and the British Isles combined. It nearly doubles the size of the United States. It's not long after that, probably while celebrating his awesomeness over a glass of apple brandy, the Thomas Jefferson sent a group of guys called the Corps of Discovery out to explore and map this newly acquired area, to chart the land, discover its flora and fauna, and make nice, or perhaps just subdue, Native American tribes. It's led by the wonderfully named Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, but it's an American Indian woman who is the secret to their success. And by success, I mostly mean not dying. Sacagawea was born to the Shoshone tribe in Idaho, but was kidnapped at age 12 by the Hidatsa, then taken to North Dakota, where she was sold and forced to marry a much older fur trapper, Toussaint Charbonneau. Every woman's dream, I'm sure. Lewis and Clark enlisted Charbonneau's help as a wilderness guide for their journey over the Rocky Mountains, and he brought a pregnant Sacagawea in tow. But she's the one who proved the bravest and most valuable team member, using her knowledge of the land to help them survive the winter, and her ability to speak several indigenous languages to help them purchase horses. All with a baby strapped to her back. Hardcore. Not that she got paid for her work or anything. You weren't expecting that, were you? But William Clark seems to have been quite fond of her. When she dies at the tender age of 25, he adopts her children. So there's that. The core of discovery shows the folks back home on the East Coast many things, one of them being that a trip to the other side of the continent could indeed be done. But it isn't until the 1840s that people start heading all the way to the West Coast in large numbers. And so here we are, back at our farmhouse window, dreaming of the life we might have. By now, several overland routes have been established across the Middle West and to the West Coast. About 7 million Americans, 40% of the populace, are living beyond the Appalachian Mountains. But why leave the safety of the known eastern states for the wild and dangerous unknown? Most of them go in search of fortune, or, at the very least, cheap land to buy and farm. The population is rising, especially in terms of immigrant numbers, and opportunities don't feel as plentiful as they once did. Plus, depressions in 1819 and 1839 pull the economic rug out from many a pair of feet. The 1840s will see a series of American victories in terms of dominating that scary land beyond the Mississippi. The United States rises victorious from the Mexican-American War in 1848, gaining vast new areas of land, and, it must be said, royally screwing over Mexico. And then there is the Western Gold Rush. After James Marshall discovers gold at Sutter's Mill in California, a rush of gold seekers head west to try and strike it rich. These 49ers, as they're called, include Chinese, European, and South American immigrants who all want in on the fortune-hunting game. By 1840, some 100,000 people flocked to California, but they're heading to other territories too, chasing rumors of the next big strike. The government is helping things along as well, as they're eager to see people heading out to populate the West. A much bigger country full of farmers means more valuable grains that the country can export elsewhere. Laws like the Preemption Act of 1841 and later the Homestead Act of 1862 mean that families can stake claims on good land for much cheaper than before. Whether or not that land is theirs to claim is another thing entirely, but we'll get to that a little later. There is also the American obsession with manifest destiny. Coined around 1845, the term is meant to express an American philosophy that's captured the culture's imagination. That it is our birthright, granted by God, to spread the American way of life through the rest of the continent, even if we have to push through indigenous tribes who have lived and thrived there for thousands of years. Oh my... Often it's the men folk who want to head for the hills, keen to pan for gold, or go down into the mines, or log the lush forests of the Pacific Northwest. They mostly want to leave their ladies behind in the East and send money back home. But many a wife isn't game to be left behind. Take awe-inspiring pioneer wife Luzina Wilson. She wrote, I thought where he could go, I could go. And where I went,
1: I could take my two little toddling babies. I little realized then the task I had undertaken.
0: So we're going. Saddle up, ladies! We'll leave in spring so we can be sure the weather won't have turned too bad when we hit those craggy mountains. That's the theory, anyway. Steam trains do exist, but at this point, none of them cut through the country to the other coast. The first transcontinental railroad won't be up and running until the 1860s, so travel west means it's a horse-pulled wagon or nothing. If you're feeling unprepared for your journey, don't fret. There are several handy manuals to guide you along. Publications like the National Wagon Road Guide and the Daily Missouri Republican are the era's lonely planets, giving you useful tips like how long the journey west might take. Three months, they say, when in reality, it's more like six. They'll also help you figure out what kinds of things you should pack how to cook dinner over an open flame, and how to keep your kids busy for 10 hours a day in a dusty wagon. Don't worry, these guides say. It'll be fun. We promise. Of course, the reality of these journeys is shockingly hard. Did you ever play that 1980s computer game, Oregon Trail? It's essentially a choose-your-own-adventure situation in which you try to get your covered wagon from Missouri to Washington. Cross this river or go around it, yes, no. Go through this valley or try and find a less dangerous route. There are lots of ways to die in this game. Measles, snakebite, cholera, drowning, pure exhaustion. But in real life, we lady pioneers won't have the option to click start over. First, there is the weather to deal with. There are often massive thunderstorms on the plains, with winds so bad that everything you own will be wet, no matter how deep you bury it in your wagon. But there are hot, dry windstorms, too. You in the States know nothing about dust. One woman wrote back east.
1: It will fly so that you can hardly see the horns of your oxen. It often seems the cattle must die for want of breath. And then in our wagon, such a spectacle. Beds, clothes, victuals, and children all completely covered.
0: And after that, in higher elevations, there's always the risk of snow.
1: I carry my babe and lead, or rather carry another, through snow and mud and water almost to my knees. Wrote that same poor woman from the crazy dust storms. I froze or chilled my feet so that I cannot wear a
0: shoe, so I have to go around in the cold water, barefooted. In 1841, at age 17, Nancy Kelsey becomes the first gal to travel by wagon train all the way to California. Though she isn't the first person to head into the great unknown, completely unprepared for what they're going to meet. Nancy, her husband, and baby daughter head out with about 30 people, none of whom have a guide to help them. They don't even have a reliable map to chart their way to the coast. Still, they manage to make it from Missouri all the way to Wyoming before getting hopelessly lost. At one point, they have to ditch their wagons, leaving them to brave the elements and the wolves. Her trip is something of a comedy of errors, though I doubt Nancy was laughing much. Some mules fall off a cliff, and when they run out of cows, they continue on without food in a landscape that is completely foreign. My husband came very near to dying with the cramps, she said later. And it was suggested
1: to leave him, but I said I would never do that.
0: Imagine how it must have felt for Nancy to ring in her big 18th birthday on top of the Sierra Nevada mountains, wondering what would kill her first, natives, hunger, or frostbite. But somehow she made it, went on to have 11 children and many adventures that make my stomach hurt just to contemplate. It does cost some money to go west. Buying and outfitting a wagon costs from 600 to to $1,000, the kind of money that's almost impossible to save on a factory worker's wage. That means most women who head west come from middle-class farming families, but that doesn't mean they're all ready for the harsh reality of frontier living. In general, these aren't the chaps wearing rebel girls from Wild West movies. And let's remember, Victorian-era rules of etiquette run very deep. Most ladies ride side-saddle into the wilderness, wearing the same heavy skirts they wore at home. Many also wear bonnets, not wanting to see their skin grow tan. Horrors! But desperate times often call for desperate, unladylike measures. It isn't long before most women are getting out of their wagons and pushing them out of mud pits, not to mention learning how to fire a gun. Some even adopt the racy bloomer costume, seeing that pants are much more practical for adventuring in. Those who cling onto their skirts learn pretty quickly how easy it is to have them burst into flame around a campfire. We lady pioneers will need strong arms, flexible ideas about personal hygiene and comfort, and a strong constitution to make it through these long days. The wagons only stop rolling from dusk until dawn, and you'll be in charge of most of what happens during those hours. Think of the very worst camping you've ever done. Terrible weather, bad roads, no electricity, no porta-potties, no matches, no headlamps, and times that by perhaps 15. And at the end of the day, when the wagons are circled and there are animals howling out through the darkness, who do you think is in charge of domestic duties like cooking and cleaning and starting a fire? Us ladies, naturally! Just like back at home, ours is the domestic sphere. Never mind that this sphere now involves bears and rattlesnakes. Our new hearth also involves a lot of dirt and heavy lifting, the likes of which most of us have never seen before.
1: Some women have very little help about the camp,
0: wrote Wild West traveler Helen Carpenter.
1: Being obliged to get the wood and water as far as possible, make campfires, unpack at night, and pack up in the morning and have the milking to do if they are fortunate enough to have cows.
0: This isn't a situation where you can retreat into an air-conditioned camper van and watch some Netflix over a glass of box wine. The conditions are hard and always changing, and so we ladies need to be able to think on our feet. Especially out on the Great Plains, where there are very few trees for fuel or cover. Often, the only thing to gather for a fire are buffalo chips. No, they are not at all like kale chips. They are dried-out buffalo poop, which must smell particularly delightful while one tries to cook over it. Some women have never once cooked out in the open, and yet, of course, they manage. On a rainy night in 1844, one James Kleiman watches a woman go about her duties with some fascination at her ability to multitask. After having kneaded her dough, she watched and nursed the fire and held an umbrella over the fire in her skillet with the greatest composure for near two hours and baked bread enough to give us a very plentiful supper. And of course, these duties don't stop while you're moving. You will not be listening to any podcasts on your road trip through the plains. You'll be rolling out that pie crust and trying to mend clothing while jolting violently back and forth behind a bunch of mules. And because there isn't much time for things like laundry, your family is probably going to spend a lot of time smelling like unwashed armpit. You'll be lucky if you can find a river to dunk those dirty drawers in. And good luck figuring out how to hang them over the fire. The trail is harsh and sometimes punishing. You might come across something truly horrible, like a stranded family, left helpless by the death of a patriarch. One pioneer remembers coming across an open, bleak prairie, the cold wind howling overhead, a new made grave, a woman and three children sitting nearby, a girl of 14 summers walking round and round in a circle, wringing her hands and calling upon her dead parent. Kids out on the trail have to grow an emotional callus with the quickness. Sometimes they write little poems on the skulls they find along the way, leaving room for the next kid to add a few lines of their own. Kind of like a game of telephone. How fun! Dirty diapers are a particular headache. Often, all you'll be able to do is scrape them out and reuse them. Leave something in the sun long enough, and it'll dry out, right? Same goes for whatever you're using to deal with your feminine hygiene. How are we even going to the bathroom in the middle of an open plain with so many men around, you wonder? Sometimes we ladies have to band together. They can often be seen standing in tight circles, shielding a urinating lady from view of the men in their wagon train. Others just have to trot farther afield to find a private place. Don't be too long, though. Wagon trains have been known to leave their womenfolk behind. Take Frances Grummond. She was peeing in Sioux Indian Territory when she discovered that her companions had forgotten all about her and headed on their way. Understandably, she panicked. In my haste
1: to reach the road or trail, I had the dreadful misfortune to run into a cactus clump, she wrote later. My cloth slippers were instantly punctured with innumerable needles. There was no time to stop even for an initial attempt to extricate them, as fear of some unseen enemy possessed my mind— as cactus needles possessed my feet.
0: She ran, her feet like living pincushions, for almost a mile before she found them. Yikes. Even if things go well, you're bound to hit trouble when the going gets rough and your cart animals start to tire. That's when you'll have to start making tough decisions about what to throw out the back of the wagon. You've brought everything you own with you, and it's precious keepsakes and pieces of furniture that are likely the first things to go. It's not that uncommon on the prairie to find a lone set of table and chairs. But don't worry, just because your husband wants you to throw things out doesn't mean you have to. When Luzina Wilson's husband declares that they have to lose some weight, Luzina looks through supplies and says that all they can afford to get rid of are three slabs of bacon and a calico apron. But while his back is turned, she manages to wash the apron, render the fat out of that bacon, chop it, and hide it all back in the wagon. Days later, her husband remarks how much better the mules seem to be doing. Luzina just nods her head and smiles a Mona Lisa smile. But women going West aren't always welcome amongst the rough and tumble. When a fear of American Indians pushed our friend Luzina to beg her husband to join up with a group of prospectors, it turned out that they didn't want her. They thought a woman and a kid would slow them down. So how glorious that, many days later, they came upon this same group of men starving to death. She gave them food and water out of her family's store, and they fell to their knees and begged for her forgiveness. Now that's what I'm talking about. Things get especially tricky for women traveling alone to meet a husband who's already out in the goldfields. Poor Julia Lovejoy suffered it all as she traveled with her two kids to meet her hubby in Kansas. One time, while on a riverboat, a male passenger offered to give her his room, seeing as her child had the measles. She moved in only to find it horrifically dirty. Only a man would have a dead cat in one of his drawers. Gross. She cleaned the room up, upon which point he changed his mind and evicted her. Classy. Some of the other fine sights her little family encountered on their journey—dead bodies in hallways, drunken outbursts, and dirty floors instead of beds. I think I'll take that covered wagon, thanks. But some girls seem able to rise to these hardships. Take Jeanette Riker, who finds herself alone in the Montana wilderness in 1849 when her dad and brothers go out hunting and never come back. She builds a shelter, kills an ox and salts the meat, and settles in to wait. Turns out she has to wait all winter, fending off wolves, before a Native American group finds her and takes her to a nearby fort. Surviving here takes serious perseverance and an iron will. Our friend Luzina said later, Nothing but actual
1: experience will give one an idea of the plodding, unvarying monotony, the vexations, the exhaustive energy, the throbs
0: of hopes, the depths of despair through which we lived. Of course, you're not the first lady to come to the West. Far from it. Spanish, Mexican, and Native American women have been here for quite a while. What happens to them is one of America's deepest and most shameful stories. Before 1846, a decent chunk of the southwest belonged to Mexico. Those who settled there before that were most certainly not doing it legally. But when the Mexican-American War comes along in 1846, Mexico ends up losing a huge chunk of their territory. And with so many settlers heading west, what does that mean for the many Mexicans who have lived there for generations? Nothing good. Don't get me wrong, many settlers are in awe of Spanish and Mexican customs. They love their parties, their food, their flashy skirts, and their tight-knit family structures. But that doesn't mean that they understand them. Or that they're going to try real hard to do so. Take Maria Amparo Ruiz, who's born to an influential family of Spanish descent in lovely Baja. She goes on to do many fabulous and racy things marries a white Protestant military man, oh my, and goes on to write some influential plays and novels filled with biting political satire about what the United States thinks it's doing by pushing people like her around and off their land. And like many Mexican-Americans, she spends long and precious years of her life fighting the people who try to take her land away from her. The rules around land titles in the West are hazy at best, In some places, if it's left untended for a certain period, all you have to do is squat on it for a while and it's yours. All the better if the original owners aren't white, as the law is much less likely to back their claim. There is no phrase more detestable for me than manifest destiny, Maria said. When I hear it, and I see as if in a photographic instance all that the Yankee have done to make Mexicans suffer... And then there are Native Americans. It's hard to fully capture what an indigenous woman's life is like before pioneers come along. There are many different American Indian tribes operating in the 1800s, and they all live with different languages, religions, and ways of life. Those who live on the Great Plains are mostly nomadic hunter-gatherers, moving wherever the buffalo roam. In many of these tribes, it's women who run the home. They're in charge of skinning and butchering the buffalo, curing their hides for teepees and clothing, and preparing the meat to last through winter. It takes some 22 hides to make just one teepee, which women sew themselves by hand. So they're pretty horrified to see how fast white settlers are killing them. "'My heart fell down when I began to see dead buffalo all over our beautiful country,' said Pretty Shield, a crow woman, killed and skinned and left to rot by white men. These women watch as their way of life changes before their eyes. One of the saddest fates that Native people have to suffer is what we now call the Trail of Tears. Some 125,000 American Indians living in the southeast were unceremoniously forced to march west, well past the Mississippi River. The Supreme Court objected to the worst of these crimes in the 1830s, affirming that Native nations are sovereign nations. But that doesn't stop people covetous of Native land from removing them by any means necessary. In 1836, the federal government drove the Creek tribe from their land along this brutal trail. Out of 15,000 people, 3,500 of them died. Some stay behind and fight and then are forced out at gunpoint. Of course, some indigenous people and white pioneers make friends and allies, but a potent mix of ignorance, greed, and fear drive many settlers to commit horrible atrocities against the people who were there before them. So it's no surprise that some native women are so terrified of white people that they bury their children in shallow holes when soldiers ride into their settlements. That is one of Sarah Winnemucca's earliest memories of her childhood. They came like a lion, she said. Yes, like a roaring lion, and have continued so ever since. This Paiute woman was born in western Nevada in 1844, given the name Thokmetany, or shellflower. Her grandfather was chief of the Paiute Nation. When he was told about settlers encroaching on his territory, he wasn't scared. He clapped his hands and said, My white brothers, my long-looked-for white brothers have come at last. He even helped General John Fremont in the Bear War, fighting against Mexican control over California. So she grew up with a foot in both worlds, learning several languages, and becomes a bridge between cultures. Later, she goes to Washington to lecture and speak out against the abuses being laid on her people. If women could go into your Congress, she wrote... I think justice would soon be done to the Indians. Some white settlers do feel bad about the way indigenous people are being treated, but others, well, not so much. I used to be sorry that there was so much prospect of their annihilation, wrote one Oregon woman. Now I do not think it is to be much regretted. If they all die, their place will be occupied by a superior race. Yikes, lady. One of the biggest fears for Eastern migrants is of what happens if they encounter Native Americans. And though in the grand scheme of things, the number of unprovoked attacks on migrant families isn't huge, there are some terrifying cautionary tales. In this era, you don't have to look far to pick up a novel about white women violently taken by savage natives. And by taken, I mean assaulted. If you've seen Godless on Netflix, you'll know what I mean. And it is true that some indigenous men kill women they capture. Some are even taken away as slaves. This, of course, is a thorny issue. And as with every good girl bad guy story, these captured women's lives and experiences are varied and not always bad. Take young Olive Oatman. In 1851, a band of Indians murders her entire family while they're traveling through Arizona, taking Olive, age 14, and her younger sister, Mary Ann, off to become their slaves. They live that way for a year, forced to do chores and beaten when they don't do them properly, until they are swapped for supplies with a group of Mojave. The family of a tribal leader adopts and raises the girls as their own. They spend years with this community, becoming one of them. So much so that when a band of white traders stays with them for several weeks, neither of the girls seek to make themselves known. They even get blue tattoos on their faces, which Mojave Indian women get to make sure they'll meet their ancestors in the afterlife. Sadly, Mary Ann dies of starvation during a particularly bad harvest. Eventually, Olive's true identity is discovered, and she's reunited with her brother. Turns out he wasn't actually killed in the mass murder. Her adopted mother cries when Olive leaves, and when she gets to the fort, Olive cries into her hands. America was desperate to know, what it had been like living among the natives? Had they made her get the tattoo, or had she wanted it? Had she been forced to marry one of the local boys? But always, the reality of her complicated growing up stays murky. In her public lectures about her time with the tribe, she sometimes calls them savages. Perhaps because that's what white audiences want to believe Native Americans are. After all, it's much easier to justify robbing people of fertile land when you believe them to be devils. But privately, she seemed to mourn the family she'd lost. She paced the floors at night in her brother's house, always restless. She never is quite able to embrace the more civilized world. So now we've arrived, we're in the West. But what are we to expect upon arrival in Nebraska or Montana or Oregon? First, you might thank God you made it, or you might indulge in a good bout of crying. That's what one girl recalled her mother doing when their wagon pulled up in front of a tiny house made of sod. Honey, we're home! I remember how her face looked as she gazed about that barren farm then threw her arms around his neck and gave way to the only fit of weeping I ever remember seeing her indulge in. The landscape is foreign, unforgiving, and scary to many Eastern ladies, especially those dusty, windswept plains that stretch as far as the eye can see. One pioneer bride begs to go with her husband on a trip to purchase wood, and when she sees trees, something she hasn't seen in two whole years, she throws her arms around a trunk and clings on like it's a long-lost sister. In these early days of migration, women are scarce out here. Out of the 50,000 people who head for the plains in 1849, only about 5,000 are of the female persuasion. Towns tend to be little more than a collection of shacks and men, and they are, in fact, quite wild. If a mine does well, the population around it swells, creating a demand that the supply can't keep up with. There's nothing like a half-formed infrastructure and the looming prospect of starvation to put the wild in west. Houses are pretty scarce, too. So, ladies, if you're hoping for a nice little three-bedroom cottage, don't get your hopes up. Your first home is likely to be a dugout, which is essentially a fancy cave dug into the side of a hill. Keeping house in a cave is, to put it mildly, challenging. One cave-dwelling girl reported that when it rains, we carried the water out with buckets, then waded around in the mud until it dried up. Then, to keep us nerved up, sometimes the bull snakes would get in the roof, and now and then one would lose his hold and fall down on the bed, and then off on the floor. And what does one do when it's raining, bull snakes? Chuck them out the front door, of course. Mother would grab the hoe and there was something doing, and after the fight was over, Mr. Bullsnake was dragged outside. You'll need to get over your fear of snakes quite quickly. One woman in Texas said she killed some 186 of them in one year. They are particularly famous for appearing in people's beds. <laughs> You might also be living in what's called a soddy, a structure made of sod bricks that weigh upwards of 50 pounds each. Sure, someday you might have enough money to build a proper log cabin, but most of your earnings will need to go toward livestock and equipment, so you'd better get comfy in that dirt hut with its gravel floors. Have you raked your living room floor today? Everything you own will have to be multi-purpose. If it can't be used as a dress, a tablecloth, and a picnic sack, then it's not going to make the cut. On the day of their wedding, one couple stood behind a wax sheet in a corner of their soddy to get ready while guests milled about on the other side. Once they were hitched, that same sheet was used as a handy tablecloth for the wedding supper. For those of you keen to get nesting, there are things you can do to make your place feel more homey. The wind whistled through the walls in winter, and the dust blew in summer. But we papered them walls with newspaper and made rag carpets for the floor and thought we were living well, wrote pioneer enthusiast Lydia Lyons. Very enthusiastic
1: over the new country we intended to conquer.
0: Reading the spines on a bookshelf at a friend's house is a popular 21st century pastime. But have you tried reading the walls? Now that's a fun way to pass the pioneer lady's time. You can spend the long winters making rag rugs. They're pretty, and they also mean that your children are less likely to get gravel or splinters just from crawling across the floor of a morning. But conquering this wild landscape is no small feat, my desert flowers. Your home is dark and the windows are small. Most of them will not feature any glass panes. Rain and mud is going to soak into those rugs and through your newspaper walls, no matter what you do. You'll also be fighting 50-mile-an-hour winds, which shred the clothes you leave out on the wash line, and make sure that furniture is always covered in a fine layer of dust. You'll also enjoy flash floods and ravenous prairie fires while huddled in your house made almost entirely of wood. Snowstorms might cut you off from the world for weeks, and there are no emergency services to come and get you. Then there is perhaps the worst plague of all, Grasshoppers These ravenous devils sweep through in huge clouds and eat absolutely everything. Crops, furniture, clothes, fences. They'll even eat all the fruit off your peaches, leaving nothing but the shriveled pits dangling from the branches. One girl lamented,
1: They commenced on a 40-acre field of corn about 10 o'clock, and before night there was not an ear corn or green leaf left to be seen.
0: Another lady tried to cover her garden with burlap sacks, but those suckers just ate right through them. They can decimate your livelihood and your food stores in just one afternoon. If you're a lady in the southwest, you'll need to make sure your bed is at least two feet from the walls, unless you want to wake up cuddling a scorpion. The fleas are a problem, too. To keep them at bay, you might burn buffalo chips inside your house. Yes, dried poop again, we will never escape it. But don't worry, you can send your young children out to collect them before winter sets in. Now that's a great idea for a scavenger hunt. Native American women build temporary structures that are easy to burn down when the infestations grow to be too much. But pioneer women want to create a kind of permanent sanctuary. And that is always going to be an uphill battle. Fresh food isn't bountiful either in these very up-and-coming towns. Much of what you'll be eating is dried and salted. We're talking hardtack, buffalo berry jelly, chokeberry pie, and every form of corn you can possibly think of. Mmm. Food stores get so low at Louise Clapp's mining settlement that she has nothing left to feed her family but dried mackerel and hard, dark hams that nothing but the sharpest knife and stoutest heart can penetrate. The same is true for clothing. Unless you're a lady of the evening in a body house, the farming lady has little need for all that corseted finery they wear out east. Given how far they often are from a town center, homesteads and cattle ranches have to be self-sufficient, and that includes your daily apparel. Your typical outfit will be a dress made of calico or gingham, an apron, and a bonnet to try and keep the sun from turning your face into an alligator suitcase. You'll also card wool or flax and spin it with one of those huge spinning wheels, then make it into everything from mittens to stockings. If you don't know how to knit, time travelers, now's the time to start getting crafty. If those wear out, you might go through that trunk of bed linens you brought west with you and sew something out of those. If you get desperate, you might even make some underthings out of grain sacks. Burlap undies, anyone? Ouch. What to do to keep busy out here, you wonder? You know, besides working yourself to the bone. You can join a book club and make some lady friends to share your trials. Well, not really. Most western towns are loose and mostly man-filled places, particularly early on, which means it's going to be hard to make good female friends. There is the occasional dance or picnic to commune over, but farm gals often spend long stretches of time with only their family for company. Some women get so lonely, they start talking to their horses and livestock.
1: If we did not have a lot of housework to do,
0: wrote young Margaret Armstrong,
1: we would be at a loss of how to kill time.
0: The fact that most western settlements are filled almost entirely with very smelly dudes presents both an annoyance and a problem. Many western belles find themselves the object of ardent and aggressive courting from dozens of suitors, whether they're interested or not. Men are so desperate for all things sexy lady that they'll pay just to see a pair of women's underwear, a la Sixteen Candles. She doesn't even have to be wearing them. Townsfolk get pissed when married men won't bring their wives to social functions so that the other men can dance with her. Now that's just rude. So it's hard to know if a man is courting you because he likes you, or just because you're a real live lady living within a certain radius.
1: Even I've had men come 40 miles over the mountains just to look at me, wrote Luzina Wilson. And I never was called a handsome woman
0: in my best days, even by my most ardent admirers. The sister of one Mrs. Reed had some 40 men paying her court. So many, they had to work out a system. Only six callers could visit the house at a time, and each had only four minutes of sofa time with the lovely lady. A bachelorette-style situation, to be sure, minus the mixed drinks and hothouse roses. Sometimes these matches are about love or lust, but sometimes they're just about convenience. One woman in Oregon recalled a man galloping up to her father to ask if he could marry one of his daughters, seeing as married men were entitled to a certain amount of land. He wasn't fussed about which one. Any would do. Sexy. But enterprising ladies look at these drooling fools and see an opportunity. <laughs> As we talked about in episode 4 on sex in this era, Wild West towns provide a very pressing need. Enter prostitutes, or the ladies we'll delicately call the fair but frail. Though most of these ladies aren't frail in the least, in a country where lucrative employment opportunities are few and far between, particularly for the single girl, a soiled dove in a town full of men can make an absolute killing. At just 19, a lady of the evening named Maddie Silks opened a brothel in Illinois. She went on to own several across the West, making mad money, taking many lovers, and This is just a tall tale, but it's too good not to mention, supposedly participating in a topless lady duel. In other words, living her best life. I went into the sporting life for business reasons and for no other, she said. It was a way, in those days, for a woman to make money, and I made it. While a domestic servant on the East Coast makes some $8 a week, there are towns in the West where a Cyprian woman can make 16 bucks in just one evening simply by being a man's dinner table escort. Nearly all these women at home were streetwalkers of the cheapest sort, said a Frenchman traveling through the West whose terrible accent I'm very sorry to foist upon you. But out here, for only a few minutes, they ask a hundred times as much as they were used to getting in Paris. These women aren't free and easy. Like their sisters on the East Coast, many have to hand over much of their wages to madams for their room and board, and the same types of worries apply. Feather boas and fancy pantaloons aside, it's far from glamorous for many. With such high demand, Payday at the Mines can see some girls servicing up to 80 men in just one evening. They suffer from untreatable diseases, a high suicide rate, and ill-done abortions. Sometimes prostitution offers us ladies an opportunity to get ahead and live an independent life. But for immigrants, that often isn't the story. This is particularly true of Chinese girls, who are stolen off the streets of Canton and sold into unspeakably horrible sex slave situations in cities like San Francisco. Later in the century, a 25-year-old dynamo named Donaldina Cameron will lead a crusade to save these women and stop the Chinese slave trade to the West. She leads police raids on brothels and gambling dens, hacking through doors with her own two hands, and then helps these women find jobs and stable husbands. One of these women, Yoke Keen, will become the first Chinese woman to graduate from Stanford. But some Western soiled doves turn their profession into a prosperous business that influences entire regions. They bring in mad business for one thing, and thus red-light districts are often the social center of town. Every boomtown has a strip of brothels that provide more than just a good time. They're a place where men can talk freely and do discreet business, and brothel girls prove good secret keepers. Thus, Cyprian ladies have more respect and more power in the West than almost anywhere else. Wealthy madams often become pillars of their community. They use their wealth to open schools, support injured minors, fund relief aid after natural disasters, and help women less fortunate than they. They're astute business ladies, too. Their investments win them freedom, but also a foothold in politics. Maybe that's why the West gives women the right to vote way before the East does. In the late 1860s, by a vote of 13 to 6, Wyoming passes a bill giving women the right to vote and hold office. On September 6, 1870, a posse of ladies led by 70-year-old housewife Louisa Ann Swain will march to the polls in Laramie, Wyoming, making them the first to vote in the United States. Well, legally vote, anyway. And this territory isn't giving up that right to join the Union as a state, either, even if Congress objects. We will remain out of the Union for a hundred years, said the Wyoming state legislature, rather than come without our women. Suffragist Susan B. Anthony is telling every gal who will listen to head on over to the earthly paradise that is Wyoming. One of the women who get suffrage passed there is 6-foot-tall, 57-year-old Esther Morris, who becomes America's first female justice of the peace. During her eight-and-a-half months in office, she adjudicates more than 40 cases. Wyoming sees women serve on juries. They push for saloons to be closed on Sundays— Female teachers get equal pay, and parents have equal rights over their children. That's productive as hell! Though of course, in her time as judge, she has to deal with as many annoying hurdles as political women in our century. There's the press, for one, which makes sure to write more about what she's wearing to the office than any of her actual rulings. And there are guys like her predecessor, who refuses to hand over any of his papers on her first day. Women of the West feel compelled to write home to Eastern newspapers, assuring everyone that voting isn't stripping ladies of their femininity. And Esther has to defend being a working mother. In performing all these duties, she said, I do not know as I have neglected my family any more than in ordinary shopping. The first 12 states to give women the vote are all in the West. Surprising, this suffrage situation may seem, but it makes sense if you think about it. With so few women around, it's not like letting them vote is going to topple the patriarchy. As much as I'd like to think that these men are just more enlightened, and given how tough life in the West is for all, I'm sure that some are, these men just have different priorities. Giving women the right to vote is a way to entice more of the fairer sex to move on out to the territories. It's like a huge roadside billboard. Come for the vote, stay for the studly miners. But what are we going to do for work if we're not inclined to take up sex work or be a suffragist? It depends a lot on where you are. Very few women take up mining or panning for gold, though there are some. Most of us ladies in mining towns are working as laundresses, seamstresses, cooks, teachers, or boarding house operators. Or you can become an entertainer. The money tends to be good, and the audiences here are so forgiving that you don't have to be able to sing or dance at all. Lola Montez makes bags of gold with her version of the classic Spanish spider dance, in which she gets up on stage and dances around as if she's trying to shake off a horde of tarantulas. She even uses fake spiders to complete the effects. Given the shortage of skilled workers in the West, the normal rules about what sorts of jobs are appropriate for us ladies do not apply. Here, too, enterprising ladies have an opportunity. It's often said that the real gold is to be found in selling supplies to the miners, and that certainly proves true for our friend Luzina Wilson. As a rule, men of this era know how to cook precisely nothing for themselves. So it's no surprise to Luzina when a guy walks right up to her campfire one day and offers her 10 bucks if she'll sell him some food. In the West, her domestic goddesshood isn't about being the ideal woman. It's a business opportunity. Later, she buys two boards to form a table, and she said, When my husband came back at night, he found, mid the weird light of the pine torches, 20 miners eating at my table.
1: Each man as he rose put a dollar in my hand and said I might count on him as a permanent customer.
0: Another woman amidst the California gold rush wrote that she made $11,000 making bread and cakes with just one cast iron skillet. What? But Luzina made 20000 bucks in just six months. That's the same amount I made in 2010 with my first job in publishing. Luzina, teach me your ways! But we ladies aren't just earning a crust by baking some. Women of the West are becoming doctors, dentists, lawyers, real estate agents. The appropriately named Laura DeForce Gordon becomes many of these things. This prominent spiritualist medium goes on to give the first recorded speech on women and suffrage in San Francisco, becomes the first woman in the country to publish a daily newspaper, and, just to keep us guessing, one of the very first lady lawyers in the state of California. One woman wrote to a friend back east, A smart woman can do very well in this country. It is the only country I was ever in where women received anything like just compensation for work. (laughs) We ladies are getting into rougher work, too. There are real live cowgirls amongst us women who actually own their own cattle ranches or homesteads, and who go on cattle drives and break horses themselves. Many of them are women of color, either Mexican vaqueras, the Spanish word for cowgirl, or African-American women who grew up in the West and are some of the best horsewomen around. Vaquera Johanna July, a black Seminole living in Texas, grew up wrangling horses. She'd take them to the river, ease onto their backs, and let them swim around with her until they get too tired to throw her off. Bold move? Some of them do it openly as women, and because the West has looser rules in the realm of place and propriety, they often get away with it. But just like our secret lady soldier friends back East, many of them are donning the breeches and living as men. Mail delivery and stagecoach driving are both seriously dangerous professions. You're riding over rough roads through desert plains and mountain passes, trying to keep your wheels from slipping into gorges or icy rivers. You're always at risk of running into outlaws or overturning into a pile of snakes. So you'd better have a gun and know how to use it. California's one-eyed Charlie Parker sure does. He is one of the toughest and most famous of them all. It wasn't until Charlie died that anyone knew she was actually Charlotte, an orphan from New Hampshire who sought to reinvent herself out west in the 1850s. She was a dependable stagecoach driver, getting huge amounts of gold across dangerous terrain. Her nickname wasn't hyperbole, either. She lost her eye when a horse kicked her face. All in a day's work. As the New York Times said of her some 100 years later, The state lands of California in the post-Gold Rush period were certainly no place for a lady. And nobody ever accused Charlie of being one. It isn't until after the Civil War wraps up in 1865 that we see the true height of what we think of as the Wild West. People pour into the frontier between 1860 and 1890, partly because the railroad makes it much more accessible, and partly because the government incentives the Promise families 160 acres if they vow to farm it for at least five years. But many African American women head west in search of equality, and to escape the terrible persecution they're experiencing back in the South. It's a hard journey for them in even more ways than their white sisters, as they have to deal with angry white Southerners who aren't keen to lose their cheap labor force. In the 1870s, thousands of black people will flee to Kansas, called the Exodusters, hoping to find community and a freer life than what they left behind. For those who venture farther afield, they suffer the same hardships and privations as white settlers, but they also suffer a particularly double-edged sword. Fewer people and harsher conditions mean less discrimination, but it also means a deeper isolation. I ain't got nobody, said an African-American pioneer woman named Eliza. And there ain't no picnics or church sociables out here. And then there are the black women who travel west alone. They tend to be real firebrands, and there's work and opportunity for those looking to find it. Born into slavery in Virginia, Clara Brown later talks her way onto a wagon train by promising to be the prospector's cook and laundress. She walks most of the 700 miles. In Denver, Colorado, she makes a boatload of money as a professional laundress to the city's many dirty and domestically hopeless gentlemen, then wisely invests it in local businesses and real estate. This woman, lovingly called Aunt Clara, turns her house into a hospital and home for the lost and impoverished. After the Civil War, she also uses her money to search for her husband and kids, who were all sold away from her. She doesn't find them, but she manages to bring 26 formerly enslaved people back to Colorado and helps them find jobs and places to live. Clara is in her 70s when she's finally reunited with one of her daughters. She is one of the first and most beloved black philanthropists in the West. And then there's Mary Fields, who works her way up the Mississippi River and ends up in a convent in Ohio, where she helps care for the property. Her temper is legendary. As one nun said, Oh God help anyone who walked in the lawn after Mary had cut it. From there, she heads out to Wild Montana, where she becomes the first African American express mail carrier. Stagecoach Mary lives a very Wild West life, drinking, smoking, toting guns, wearing pants, fighting off wolves, and living life on the edge and on her terms. As one Montana native said, She was one of the freest souls to ever draw a breath or a thirty-eight. Ladies of the West get in on the Civil War as soldiers, too, and often don't have to pretend to be men while doing it. Their regiments are more likely to just accept their offer to serve. After fighting and being injured several times under the name William Cathy, Cathay Williams becomes the only documented female Buffalo soldier. That's the 1st African American Peacetime Army Regiment. She's a bit hard done by, though, our cafe. The men all wanted to get rid of me after they found out I was a woman, she said. Some of them acted real bad to me. Like many lady soldiers, her pension request is later denied. Of course, you could always get involved in serious Wild West lawlessness, gambling, stick-ups, and highway robbery. The stories of the women who do are the stuff of legends, where fact and fiction are often hopelessly intertwined. Eleanor Dumont becomes one of the first and most successful female gambling operators in the West. Operating under the outrageously wonderful name Madame Mustache, she arrived in San Francisco in her 20s and proceeded to outgame everybody else at the table, buying champagne for the losers so they wouldn't feel too bad. She even opened her own luxury gambling parlor. She used her winnings to purchase a cattle farm, and when her manager, Jack McKnight, ran off with her money, legend has it she hunted him down and killed him with a shotgun. Sorry about it. Later in the century, two women with guns will become national sensations. Annie Oakley makes quite a splash with her fancy shooting, which she learns after her father dies and she has to hunt in order to support her family. She becomes famous while shooting for Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, where she wows the crowds by hitting very tiny targets like cards and the tips of cigarettes from the back of her moving horse but she refuses to ever ride anything but sidesaddle, or to wear pants during her act, however practical. In doing so, she proves that one can be a lady and also shoot at things. Martha Calamity Jane Canary is a different story. She turns herself into a legend, mostly through shameless self-promotion, drinking hard and taking lovers, all while wearing male attire. But while everyone loved Annie Oakley, in reality, Jane had fewer fans. The West is a place where ladies have a chance at opportunity and greater equality. But just like back East, society isn't always kind to women who want to live a life outside the lines. Then there are the gunslingers who actually commit crimes. Pearl Hart holds up stagecoaches in Arizona with her hair cut in a fetching bob and a proper cowboy outfit, then escapes from jail. The bandit queen may be an outlaw, but I think what she has to say during her trial is pretty fair. I shall not
1: consent to be tried under a law in which my sex had no voice in
0: making. For women, the frontier was both a terrible unknown and a tantalizing promise. Enterprising souls with a fondness for wide open spaces could find freedom and opportunities that once eluded them. Those who lived there before the pioneers fought back as they watched their ways of life change forever. The West is full of stories of heartbreak and triumph, but none would be the same without Wild West women who showed incredible grit, resourcefulness, and bravery in an unforgiving land. It's with an image of a lady pioneer riding off with her guns into the sunset that season one of The Explores comes to a close. As sad as I am to leave mid-19th century America behind us, we have new countries and time periods to explore, new horizons to adventure to. Until next time. To everyone who listened, reviewed, and shared the show with friends, thank you. It's been a wild ride, and having you all in the covered wagon with me has made all the difference in the world. A particular thanks to my patrons and to all the lovely podcasters who enthusiastically cheered me along and promoted the show. I'll be back before you know it with a brand new season. Make sure you're subscribed to The S so you can catch season two as soon as I start releasing episodes. I wouldn't want you to miss a thing. If you're keen to hear more from The S before then, go to my website and become a patron. Besides supporting the show, it'll give you access to hours of exclusive bonus episodes, plus sneak peeks for season two and between season extras. For a transcript of this episode, plus a list of my sources and more, go to my website www.theexplorespodcast.com. I want to give a particular shout out to Gail Collins and her book America's Women, 400 Years of Dolls, Drudges, Helpmates, and Heroines, which form the backbone for this episode. It's full of truly fascinating factoids, and I highly recommend it. For loads of pictures to go along with this episode, come find me on Instagram at The Explores Podcast or Facebook at the same handle. Or you can tweet at me at The Explores Pod. Thanks, as always, to my talented husband Paul for my theme song and logo, and to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Nancy Wasner, Caitlin Seifert, Edie Chevalier, love you mom, and some of my favorite podcasting ladies. Heidi from the Vibrant Visionaries podcast, Ray from the Woman's splaining podcast, Amanda from Amanda's picture show a go-go, and Kayla from the Get Grim podcast. Special shout out to my brother John, who wins Best Attendance Award for featuring in every single episode. Love ya!